0: Hello my friends. Today Joel is talking to Brian, the founder and CEO of Code Climate, and they discuss how to implement data-driven engineering management with Code Climate, the impact that adopting a data-driven approach has on every level of the engineering organization, and how to think about creating a product that is a tool versus a product that's a solution. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. is the modern CTO podcast. I'm curious, um, can you share your sort of like background story? Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, so I first had exposure, I think, to computers in you know elementary school at at school computer labs, and eventually I was able to convince my uh, my dad to buy me one at home uh, just to kind of play around with. Uh, get on AOL back in the day. That was the the way we connected to the internet, and just started to tinker uh, a bit. Um, you know both uh, at home as well as um, with friends like in the neighborhood i remember like going over to you know somebody's house and we had a you know Borland c++ thing on floppy disks and loaded it in and tried to create something that could you know write text out to the terminal or whatever yeah just it was super interesting from from early on and really kind of just stuck with it through you know through school pretty much knowing the whole way that i felt like hey this software engineering thing um, is is really exciting exciting to me. And I think it's what I'm going to want to do um, you know, as, as a career. Went to school uh, for computer science and uh, did not finish. Um, I actually dropped out to take a job doing software engineering at a consultancy um, in Michigan. And I guess one thread that sort of Interesting about and, and super fortunate, frankly, for, for me throughout my career, is after playing with you know things like like Visual Basic and and PHP early on, uh, I found my way to Ruby um, and Ruby on Rails in particular uh, as a programming language and, and framework by perhaps maybe 2005 or so, which was pretty early. There weren't very many people using Ruby on Rails um, commercially in the United States, and it was a pretty small community. And so that was kind of one of the big catalysts for me in my career as a technologist um, was was sort of finding a technology community and a uh, technology itself that was really powerful and um, new, and it ultimately became you know very popular. And there's so many successful businesses like Shopify uh, that are built on top of this this Ruby on Rails technology. But being there at the beginning for that was extremely uh, impactful on me, uh, on my career. And I remember, you know, I, I used to go to um, some of the the conferences in the programming language community, there was RailsConf, like the first one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd look around and the folks who were sort of in the hotel lobby, I mean, I wasn't old enough to order a drink from the hotel bar at the time. Like I had to get other attendees to, to buy drinks from me. I was 20. Uh, but like the people who were around in that time, like, so many of them went on to do amazing, big, great things. Um, And it was great for for a networking standpoint, um, to kind of tie this back to your comment earlier. Uh, And that's really what brought me to New York um, where I am today. Uh, I got a job offer from somebody I had known from a conference. Hey, do you want to do Ruby on Rails programming like in New York City? And it was basically just like cold offer. It's like, yeah, sure. Like I'm in. So I packed up, moved from Michigan to New York, um, where I've been since, and got experience working in a uh, variety of different uh, industries: mobile, social, uh, e-commerce. Before Code Climate, I was working in an energy efficiency company, helping people figure out how to save on their power bill by giving them, you know, insights and recommendations, and sort of moved my way up from a you know software engineer to an engineering manager, and eventually. Um, Prior to Code Climate, I was the CTO of that uh, energy efficiency company. You know, I I had always enjoyed building things for other software engineers. So that took the form early on of of open source software and just like creating, you know, open source packages. They're called Ruby gems in the Ruby community uh, that other people might take advantage of and was fortunate to to kind of work with some very smart um, open source contributors on some packages that were reasonably popular. And that was really rewarding to me. Which ones? The one one of them that was popular at the time was a package called uh, WebRat. Oh yeah, and WebRat. The R A T in in WebRat stood for uh, Ruby Acceptance Testing. So this was a package that you could use to sort of write a uh, a test harness for your web application. Make sure that you can you know the the application worked properly when it would click on buttons and fill out forms and whatnot, and that. You know became so people who uh, have been working in Rails or Ruby more recently might have heard of a package called Capybara. And if you've ever heard of Capybara, you might think, why does it have this weird name for this giant rodent? And the reason for that is because Capybara was designed to be a successor to WebRat and and sort of webrat was the the sort of the the rat name being introduced, and Capybara became the the sort of successor to that. So that was one of them.
0: Uh, That is amazing. I don't know if you know this, but like the last eight, eight or nine years of my programming, basically, I I stopped programming full time when the podcast got really popular about Mm -hmm. like three years ago. But up until then, you know, 17 years as a software developer, the last seven to nine were Ruby on Rails.
1: Yeah right. so, so I was yeah, like you might have <laughs> you yeah. might have had some exposure and I apologize for anything that didn't work well or properly that I'm sure was my fault. <laughs> <pull.
0: laughs> Did you were you a core contributor at all?
1: I, I, the, on the WebRat project, I, I basically was the the lead uh, on that, and uh, I also had some uh, involvement and exposure um, with the RSpec project. Got to know the folks who who sort of did that. Um, contributed a chapter to the uh, the original RSpec book, um, which was uh, which came out at that time. But yeah, just kind of got into the you know oriented in this like the testing groove, behavior driven development, test driven development. That stuff was all very. Um, interesting to me.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's phenomenal. I'm excited, though, because I don't want to get like too technical with the stuff and make this whole interview about like, Oh, let's talk about rails. So tell me a little bit about for people who don't know, uh, what is code climate? What do you guys do?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, the way that we describe Code Climate is an engineering intelligence company. And what that means is we make products that help people improve the way they do software development, their entire software development organizations. And the impact of that, that we strive for, our sort of vision for a future state in the world, is what we think of as transparency alignment and efficiency for software development. And and I find that really powerful because, uh, at least in my experience working on a bunch of different software projects over many years, um, unfortunately, most software development initiatives tend to be lacking in in one or more of those areas. And that's exactly what we try to help with. So the way that we do this is uh, at Code Climate, we, we connect to systems like DevOps and collaboration tools, places where engineers are working with PMs and designers day-to-day, things like GitHub and JIRA and CI, um, And we pull in all that data into our engineering data platform. And we take those signals, we analyze them, clean them up, we turn that into insights that are intended to help boost basically the ROI of the software development group for a business. And the, the effects that that can generate are helping teams uh, better focus on top strategic priorities, uh, reduce the amount of time spent on interruptions, incidents, you know, customer escalations, distractions, that type of thing, save engineers time and, and hassle, and ultimately be able to build you know, better software products uh, more rapidly
0: you guys have a lot of features. I was checking you out recently, you know, before this interview, you do so much more than what you did in my head, because, you know, it's been like, like I said, it's been like two or three years since I've been actively programming. And back then I had like a handful of specific things, like way I saw code climate, as you guys have expanded what you're offering and your features and things like that. What sort of, have you had difficulty with with this, the fact that a lot of people see you as A and you're becoming B or is it, what's that been like?
1: Yeah, well, we, we've certainly evolved uh, as a company. So we now have two products. Uh, those products are called Quality and Velocity and Quality was the product that we started with um, Code Climate as a, a company, you know, we're over 10 years old now. We actually celebrated our 10 year anniversary um, last year. It started as a nights and weekends project for me when I was a CTO, and then sort of went through all of the phases from there as a side project. To um, okay, I'm going to do some consulting and work on on the side, and then okay, this is going to be my full time thing. But I'm not making a dollar, so my you know I'm starting to get nervous about running out of money. Ultimately, to being able to to make some some money on it, and we've we've grown uh, a long way since there. We've Raised our Series C round of funding last year, which was a $50 million round of funding, and are growing very, very quickly these days. Uh, And so one of the first transitions was that change from being a single product company with quality to being uh, a two product company. Uh, And the quality product is really focused on helping software engineers uh, improve the the quality of the code that they write in their software development workflow. And that's where a lot of software engineers have familiarity um, with code climate as a company and as a product. The Velocity product has a, what I would consider to be a much larger scope. So we launched Velocity in 2018. And we the reason we did that is we, we sort of came to this idea that there might be an even larger opportunity to use data to improve, not just the software code quality itself, but the entirety of the engineering organization. And that's kind of what we built uh, and brought to the market with, with Velocity. So it is a lot bigger, there's a lot in there. The way that we talk about the the sort of the key groups of value propositions that we're able to help with, because it can feel really broad, is with the three pillars, which are align, deliver, and improve. Um, and pretty much everything we do kind of rolls up onto uh, one of those pillars. So the, with the align pillar, um, that's really about trying to solve these problems that you hear where, where people say things like, um, you know, I have so many software engineers and I just can't, I just feel like people aren't even working on the right things, right? If, if we could go much faster, if we could just get everybody, you know, growing in the same direction, that's kind of an alignment problem. And that's especially acute as you get into, you know, larger organizations, more layers, complexity but it can certainly sort of make it feel like it doesn't really matter how fast we're going if we're going in the wrong direction. The deliver pillar is around taking units of work and getting them moving through a system rapidly and with low risk. And depending on who you're talking to in an organization, the units of work might be at different levels of granularity. So an individual engineer might care a lot about getting their pull request merged. You might have a product manager who cares about their feature. And then you have engineering directors who are focused on big initiatives for the next couple quarters, Uh, but they're all focused on this delivery pillar. And then the third pillar is improve. And that's really about how can we, as a software development organization, improve our processes, our teams, um, and even as individuals, uh, level up the way that we are contributing. Um, And that was kind of where we sort of started was on this like improve pillar. um, And we've expanded to to sort of support um, the those three and they they kind of work hand in hand
0: so let's go to align first that's like a key feature of what a lot of the project management systems are trying to solve right like the Atlassian's and things like that of the world are you providing them data to to help with the organization are you integrate how do you or are you guys actually trying to do how do you do alignment I guess is the better question
1: Yeah, so everybody has project management tools, right? There's always some sort of system that has tickets or issues, epics, whatever you want to call it. And what we find is that uh, there, there are a few sort of roadblocks to that really being able to drive the level of alignment that's necessary to to be successful. First is you have all the work that's not represented as issues, right? And so that's things that are, you know, whatever it is, it's a skunk works project. It's somebody getting pulled uh, you know out of the hallway to go work on something. It's an incident that's on fire that never even makes it to an issue because the website's down and we don't have time to write an issue. Um, and that stuff is totally... Uh, invisible relative to a project management system. The next problem is the data is only as accurate as it's sort of been updated by hand, right? So, you know, you see all the time people will be working on things and the pro, you know, the issue says not yet started, right? Or, or conversely, um, it says in progress, but actually it's been done for two weeks. So any sort of visibility, which is built on humans kind of going in and um, sort of recording exactly what state things are in or recording how much time they spent on something, which some organizations try to do is really error prone. And then the third problem is that even if you kind of had accurate data, the project management system is really designed to serve the software engineering group in terms of the way that they are breaking down their stories. They might be estimating them with points. Maybe they're creating an epic, maybe they're not. But if you go up to maybe the top levels of an organization and you have a CTO who's responsible for an organization with 400 people in their technical headcount, and you say, hey, I've got some great information for you. I can show you, you know, where your time is going, and, and here's here's a list of epics and and how much you know focus each of them got over the past quarter. It's twelve hundred epics, right? And and so at that point, it's not actually communicative uh, communicative in terms of closing the gap between what people really need to see um, at the leadership level in order to help steer an organization effectively and what people at the engineering team level need in order to have you know small units of work with clear specs that they can kind of put into a sprint and complete. Uh, and so there's this big kind of chasm that needs to be crossed. Uh, and that's one of the things that our align pillar is focused on doing is helping everybody have a consistent understanding of hey, where is our energy going? Where's our time and money going? Um, is that where we want it to be? Uh, and you know, how do we adjust to make sure that we're actually actually kind of going in the direction that we feel is most important so that everyone in the organization doesn't feel like they're being pulled in three different directions all the time.
0: And that's something you do today. Yeah. And so I guess like, I'll just go later. I'm, I'm just curious. I want to look at like how you guys actually do it. Cause that's a really big problem to solve. It is a very hard problem. Yeah. So,
1: you know, there, there are a lot of ways to simply count up things like issues and look at, we have you know this many issues that say bug on them this many issues that say feature on them right and but that is very rudimentary understanding so what we do is we pull in all this information the nice thing about software development compared to let's say you know sales sales they have their crm system and people build very advanced you know insights and reporting on top of things like salesforce um but if a sales rep Text a customer and they don't record that in Salesforce, then it basically didn't happen, right? Whereas with software engineering, um, in order to be most effective, we have these systems that we use to do kind of everything in the, the SDLC. We have a uh, version control system, we have a code review system you know, built into something like Bitbucket, we have an incident management system, CICD, and, and all of these systems record. Uh, everything that's going on and tr- are able to understand on kind of a you know hour by hour, minute by minute basis, like w- what's really happening across an org. So if you take that information in and you are able to clean it up, link it together, run it through some data science a- and then aggregate it up, you can start to understand things like, hey, last month we spent 46% of our time dealing with you know, incidents, for example. And that you know, the number of tickets that we had was three, but actually, we can see here that you know the, the pager is going off in the middle of the night. People are responding to that. And then we can start to get into uh, where we're going in the future, which I think of as, as basically second order insights. So you know something like PagerDuty can tell you at a basic level how often your developers are getting woken up in the middle of the night. Um, but what PagerDuty can't tell you is the impact of your developers getting woken up in the middle of the night on your top priority feature initiative and how we can be pretty confident that your features not going to ship on time unless you fix your on-call rotation because the people who are responsible for for sort of building that feature you know that's joel and joel isn't sleeping right because because the servers are on fire every night so there's a lot that you can do by bringing this information together
0: that's pretty cool. I'm definitely excited to see those interfaces. And I think your company is perfectly positioned to do something like that because you're already at the core of the lifecycle for everything that they do. So you're already plugged into all of these systems. And so, and so you you can connect multiple sets of data to derive some new insights, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah. What we're, what we're doing on the data front is working on Open data platform for software engineering data. So, if you think about the common concepts um, that are necessary to build and ship software in 2022, there's been kind of some level of agreement on some of these terms and what some of the best practices are in different systems that people might use. So, um, an understanding of a a package, a release, a review, um, a feature flag, which was something that not many people. using not too many years ago um, but now these things kind of exist they've been established uh, but they're all spread out across all these different systems there's you know a, a proliferation of devops tools in every category there's you know A dozen options Uh, and so with our uh, engineering data platform we have defined a language of about 50 different data types for those types of concepts and then the connectors that we have basically uh, talk to those systems bring in information that we can understand semantically um, and then that allows us to build the insights uh, on top of that
0: you guys have been working hard you guys didn't you you didn't just stop at like you know Tabs and spaces validation. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've come a long way. <laughs> well, I love it. So, what's the interesting thing happening right now? So, you're you're the founder. You've been at this company obviously ten years, right? Uh, I've been at companies and built them, and you always have to find something to to keep it exciting, to keep it fresh. Like, what's the thing that's really got you pumped up right now?
1: Yeah, well, you know, my my role has has certainly evolved over the last ten years. So we um, we started as a a bootstrap company. It was myself, my co-founder, and we were able to to bootstrap Code Climate around our our quality product at the time to over a million dollars of annual recurring revenue. But really, by just wearing all of these hats ourselves, Um, and we got to that point, and it it sounded it seemed like this huge milestone, big victory, right? Like, oh my gosh, we're two three people, we're generating a million dollars of revenue. I mean, just the division like isn't this great but of course uh what we learned through that experience was that it really takes a village And we needed more people in the organization in order to do all of these different very important tasks like respond to customer inquiries. And at the time, AWS wasn't really a thing, right? So it's like, who's going to make sure that the infrastructure is is, the way that it needs to be. And so we did end up raising uh, some funding to be able to expand and grow the organization. And over the last 10 years, I've worn a bunch of different hats, dabbled in a number of areas, um, but I've been the CEO the whole time. And now we have, for example, a, a VP of engineering, who's who's the person who's directly responsible for all of our uh, technology. Um, and I like to, to joke sometimes that I've taken up uh, functional programming, uh, which in, in the form of Excel spreadsheets, which are, <laughs> are the best, uh, closest I've got to functional programming, but it's absolutely functional. So, you know, it's a high growth year for us. We're about 60 people today. We expect to finish 2022 with uh, around. 140 people in terms of headcount, so more than doubling our, our staffing. And so along the way, you know, my, my focus areas are as much uh, sort of product vision and, and leadership uh, on one front, but also a lot of organizational building on the other side. Um, so helping to upgrade, uh, you know, our processes. The 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 top initiative on my plate right now is something that we refer to as our company operating system. Uh, and basically updating our firmware as a, as a company um, in the sense of, hey, how do we plan our, our goals and initiatives and what systems do we use to communicate? Because as you know, the, the company has kind of doubled in headcount each year for the past few years, everything basically breaks um, when, you, when you double um, everything. So you know, just as you, if you're if you're on top of things and you can fix your you know problems uh, as they come along, you get the benefit of that for maybe a year, and then you have to kind of do it all over again. So it's it's been a a fun experience, sort of being able to work with so many great talented people and be a leader of an organization with with so much um, talent in it. It kind of I, I was saying to my fiance recently. Sometimes I feel like a wizard. She's like, "What do you mean you feel like a wizard?" I <laughs> said, "Well." Now, uh, you know if if there's something that we're gonna do, like I can, you know, I talk to people about it, and they go off and they do these amazing things, and they come back, you know, four weeks later, and they're like, oh, this is what we built. Like, let us show you this, and it's like amazing stuff that I could have never done myself, and it just sort of magic in a in a sense uh, because it just kind of came from this idea, and then it's the uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in terms of the capability and organization relative to anything that I could have you know coded myself.
0: Oh, yeah. And then there's the um, when you when you learn that you have that power, you learn to be careful with what you say, because sometimes your your suggestion can be taken literally. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, Common uh, uh, learning uh, from from folks who who uh, maybe are a little bit, you know, might be a little loose with with some things they they throw out or and and then they wait a minute. I actually mean we want to do that right now.
0: Right. Uh, just out of curiosity, have you come across the uh, EOS, the Enterprise Operating System?
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, that's a, a book that I think I've read once or twice. It's like an orange book, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had one of the one of the authors. Like it was written by a couple people, I, I believe. We had one of them, like in in one of our group calls, uh, like a week or two ago. I think it was last week, and I hadn't heard about it before. And so I just learned about this whole enterprise, and they have you know all their own you know specific words and processes and everything. But when you said that you're rewriting your system, I was like, "Ooh, that sounds a lot like uh, the EOS."
1: Yeah, yeah, we we've
0: adopted
1: starting a few years back some of the concepts um, in here. I think we we probably had maybe one or two years where the EOS uh, system was kind of how we tried to, to steer the business.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about how your as an entrepreneur, I like to talk about the sales side of things too. Sure. Um, I've, my first thought was, okay, you're probably getting, you know, all your sales because developers just know who you are. They've seen that badge on GitHub for the past decade. You know, that's how I found you guys, by the way. Like you were on some open source project and I could kick, click this little code climate badge and I was like, what's this? And, uh. And and so I imagine that a lot of your business comes from developers using you and then sort of like expanding into some paid version or are you guys like B2B calling up companies? How are you getting your business?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And we, we've always been... Really close with GitHub since back in the day. A fun fun fact is my GitHub user ID is 19. That was from day day one, basically when when Tom and Chris um, sort of you know threw that out in an IRC channel. They said, hey, we're playing with this thing. You know, you can sign up if you want. I signed up, and so with the quality product, um, really it it grew uh, and continues today to grow very much through sort of word of mouth and what we would refer to as like a self service uh, buying motion. You know, you you can sort of try it out. We we have it uh, available for free for open source projects and there's hundreds of thousands of open source um, software projects that take advantage of the the quality product that we offer and then for private projects um, you can activate a free trial and and basically uh, swipe a credit card you know at the end of a, a trial period. Um, and we didn't have, you know, at the time we were just a couple people. We didn't have sales or marketing or or anything like that. And, uh, you know, it was just about basically building something that, um, you know, people would adopt and be able to adopt on their own. You know, it does what it says on the tin kind of thing. There were some docs, you know, if you needed support, you can get support. And that is a really great model for something like a, you know, a developer tool like that. Uh, with the Velocity product, we got started and we thought, oh, well, we'll just do the same thing, right? Like we'll, we'll sort of build the product and then we'll give people a way to just like start with a free trial and a credit card form at the end. And what we learned was that the difference basically between selling a tool and a solution. Um, so I think of our quality product as a as a tool. It does what it's supposed to do. It does it well. Um, we have many customers, uh, basically a thousand customers, on the quality product, um, and uh, many of them have been around um, uh, for for many years. Uh, but with velocity, what we're really kind of selling is the opportunity to increase the the ROI of your software engineering organization, and Our customers are able to to generate a benefit of something like maybe a 20 to 30% productivity increase um, within a relatively short period of time, of maybe six months, um, through having access to these insights and then putting them um, to use. But uh, many software engineering organizations or software leaders have not really used data to drive their their groups historically in the past. There's been a lot of gut feel anecdotes when when CTOs are talking to their their leadership peers or their CEO, um, there's often a lot of sort of, hey, just trust me on this. You know, I know what I'm know what I'm doing. And so the concept of using data um, and and combining qualitative context and insights with with sort of fact-based information is something that people are, in many cases, sort of learning to do for the first time. And as a result of that, we found that it is really valuable to be able to uh, sort of help talk them through the best ways to do that. So um, if an organization is interested in talking to us about, let's say, our velocity product, they've a couple hundred engineers we have experts and specialists who are able to sort of help them plot a course for how they're going to bring data into their organization um, and we find that to be really valuable so kind of learned the the value of you know in some cases sales right we do have sales people at code climate i think sometimes engineers might think of uh, sales as a as like a dirty word or like a bug in a system that needs to be optimized away but Sales, when it's done well, is really about helping you figure out how to achieve what you're trying to achieve with a, a an offering of product or a piece of software. And, and so it can be um, really mutually beneficial.
0: Yeah, I was blown away uh, several years ago when... I heard somebody giving a talk about the amount of salespeople at different technology companies. Companies you would think are comp- like Netflix, right? The, there's a there's a lot of salespeople at Netflix. It's like, what do you mean? You just go on there and you buy their stuff? Well, there's all sorts of licensing. There's commercial stuff. There's there's so many different things that you don't see. You just yeah. primarily see the the private consumer version in your life. Um, but you know, people helping other people is like what makes the economy go. It's how we communicate and transmit value to one another. Right. And so when you can find a reason to have like more humans together, uh, I find that the businesses tend to grow faster versus it just trying to be a completely automated situation. Like I've never seen, uh, or it's, it's the exception, not the rule for a company to get really, really, really big and just be completely like automated and need no people, like no customer service people, no sales people. Um I can't think yeah. of any good example can you think of any like hundred million dollar companies that don't need people?
1: Well, I think a lot of them, you know, a lot, a lot of software businesses, SaaS businesses that that grow to that scale, a lot of them do introduce more enterprise sales motions as they go. Even Atlassian, which was sort of like famously kind of hey, self-service. I mean, an Atlassian seat for for a lot of their products is like $4 a month, right? So it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really um, require uh, a whole lot of hand-holding, but they've started to add more enterprise offerings and sales that they're, you know, when, when businesses are able to grow sort of with that uh, just fully kind of self-service um, approach, it's, it's really magical and really cost efficient. I think Zapier is, is one that went a long way without uh, doing that. I think they're starting to to do more of that today, but just grew like a weed, ma- a massive with a very amazing product and, and strong leadership and, um, and doing that through a self-serve motion. Uh,
0: all right, common sales objections. Why do people say that they don't wanna buy it? Well, I think, um, you
1: know, with, with something like velocity, one of the things that people are always thinking about is, you know, what is going to be the impact on my overall software engineering organization? And you know, how are my engineers going to feel about the idea of using more data to to sort of steer? And so that's something that we w- you know talk with prospects and customers about on a regular basis. And I think it's really important to set the context appropriately, right? Because you can imagine like two worlds. In one world, uh, maybe, you know, somebody... Uh, Uh, a CTO is interested in um, something like Velocity to to help with their engineering organization. And in in the first world, they sort of like throw it over the wall to some engineers, some engineering managers, and they say, hey, what do you think about this thing, right? Well, in that case, the the engineers, the engineering managers, they're going to kind of fill in this like void of like, wait, why are we even looking at this? What is the intent? What is the objective with whatever comes up in their head? And maybe they decide, oh, well, this is about, you know, sort of, turning into management by numbers or, or something like that, right? And they come up with some, some answer that's not actually the right answer. In another world, uh, imagine a CTO who goes to their engineering organization and says something, and this is something a number of our customers have done, they'll say something like, hey, um, I really want our engineering organization to be a standard of excellence. And what that means is when you know all of you go off and, and write your resumes and eventually might be working somebody else, I want people who worked on this engineering team to be hired specifically because they have this experience on their resume, because everybody in the city knows that they do a great job with engineering over there. And one of the ways that we're gonna do that is I see an opportunity to use data to level up the way that we're doing software engineering. And here's maybe solutions that we're looking at doing it, or we're gonna do it ourselves or whatever the implementation path is, But now the engineers uh, in in the organization, they understand the goal and how there's a clear alignment actually between what leadership might be thinking about and what they're trying to do. Um, And if you kind of break down what we are able to do with with engineering intelligence, um, sometimes I like to say that if if you just think about what the problems are that software engineers experience on a day-to-day basis, and and you're gonna think about things like slow and flaky CI environments, late changing product requirements, being blocked on a mock-up from design, those are all things that can be difficult for uh, everyone in an organization to have visibility into, without having data, they all can be um, made more transparent through data. And, and if you resolve those types of, of bottlenecks or roadblocks, you're going to have two immediate benefits. One, the engineers are going to be able to be more productive, right? And they're going to be able to spend more time in their editor, more time coding, with with fewer impediments. And then also there's a benefit to the product, the business, the innovation. And and so it's really a win-win. So that's one of the um, conversations that I think is really important to think through as you're thinking about, okay, how do I bring something like
0: this into an organization? You said like eight awesome things I want to address, but I can't address them all. (laughs) 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 But I really am enjoying though from like just getting to talk with you about the future of Code Climate, the direction you're headed, the culture. You know, you really spoke to me when you said being the team that everyone looks at in town as the team that does this the best, because that's my style. Like, I like to find out one thing that we do better than anyone else and just keep hitting that nail, like as much as possible. Right. And that's for me, I think that was a pretty creative like sales angle too, because there, there is, it's not everybody for sure. It's not everybody, but there is a a segment of the market out there who wants to be the best. And they're looking for a leg up and they're looking for that, you know, 1% advantage that they can gather. And to pitch this as like, we can give you data that will allow your teams to be seen like that if you act on it, that's actually like a pretty, pretty awesome sales pitch.
1: No, thanks. Well, I think the other element that is is really important as, as time goes on is really helping engineering have a full seat at the table at the leadership team level. Because if you think about you know, what happens with a leadership team, you've got a CEO, they've got a group around them. There's all these functional areas that are represented. All of those functional areas, whether it's sales, marketing, even HR, which is a naturally a very people-oriented function, over the last 10 years, they've all gotten access to high-quality data-driven insights to help them run their functional area. And, in, and, and that's super important for maximizing their credibility when they speak to their executive peers, their CEO, their board about you know, what they've done, what they're going to do, why they're doing it, what is the impact on the business. And oftentimes, historically, with engineering, you know, it's never going perfectly, right? Like everybody's got issues, you know, late engineering projects are probably more common than on-time engineering projects. Um, but people in the past, you look around and say, okay, this is late. Okay, it's actually really late. Okay, why? And people kind of shrug and they go, well, it's just the way it is, right? It's just, you know, it's late. We'll try to do better next time. And so I think there's a really strong opportunity with data and engineering in order to actually um, help elevate the conversations around what's going on inside of technology organizations and be able to advocate as effectively as possible for the needs of the team. And that might be, Hey, we need to invest another quarter million dollars on CI this year uh, we need to increase our budget for that or we need to add more headcounts um, but it's not always add more headcount and nobody can really feels like they can hire as fast as they, they want to these days necessarily but through our experience with velocity and, and helping organizations understand what's going on with their engineering data, we've seen plenty of cases where businesses add engineering headcount and the total productivity or, or, or output of the engineering organization stays the same or it even goes down a bit. And then you think about what happens out in the wild normally when when you sort of see that pattern is people typically think, OK, well, I guess we need to hire more people. Right. And it's sort of like a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so by being able to bring concrete data driven insights, um, it really helps the CTOs out there sort of convey information most effectively to their their product peer or to their CEO um, to get what they actually need.
0: Yes. Every time somebody talks about hiring more people, I just think about the the government when they did that healthcare project or whatnot. Healthcare.gov. Oh, when I read about that, I, I saw this article and they were treating it like a, it was a construction project in the sense that the more hands we have at the the job site, the easier and faster it'll get done. And I just, I laughed. And then I think some some companies in, out in Silicon Valley, I think ended up like flying out there and helping with it um but yeah, yeah yes. it, was, it was a uh, a mess and uh you know you can have this, this uh
1: dynamic where as you build out the complexity of an org chart you're actually the complexity of the software system that that org chart maintains increases as well right because suddenly okay you have you know four more teams and, and wait a little bit and you might very well grow four more microservices, right? It's like, well, (laughs) did we need four more microservices or, you know, could that microservice have been a a module or just a class? Um, And you you see these kind of uh, patterns develop.
0: So uh, we're coming up here. We've got about 10 minutes or so left. I did want to get to this question. So I was talking with uh, Adam Barrett. Uh, He's a past guest on the podcast. He has a company called like Apex Ridge Reliability. But uh, the interesting thing about him is he does reliability engineering. He does it for software, but he comes from a background of doing it for like industrial and physical things as well. And so for me, that's really geeky because I didn't, I always really look up to those people doing the hardware and industrial things because m- all my knowledge is basically in software. Yeah, but, my uh, first reaction was uh, that, that that sounds much more reliable than the average uh, software program. Right. (laughs) You want it to be too. So, um, when we were talking about it, uh, we were, you know, he gave all sorts of tips and stuff on the show. And then I told him I was talking to you and he knew who you guys were. And he was curious about how you, how you approach like reliability for engineering at code climate, like within your organization.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we try to follow you know, the best practices that are out there. We have an integrated team in the sense that the operations, the site reliability engineering work, the application, you know, new feature development, that is all sort of mixed in the responsibilities for the same folks. So we try to kind of have the application engineers who are sort of building new features, bringing them to market, kind of have that consideration in mind. Like, how is this going to, to run, right, um, and thinking about how do we make sure that we are delivering on our, you know, the uptime levels, the performance SLAs that we, we sort of uh, are promising? I mean, a huge part of it for, for us is um, having, you know, version control for everything uh, in our infrastructure stack. So basically all of our infra changes are, you know, in the form of, of pull requests generally. Um, so they can get reviewed, they can be deployed sort of reliably. Uh, we don't actually have a uh, one of the things that may be a little bit interesting. We don't have a, um, a staging environment today in the sense that we are able to deploy changes from, from branches um, and then uh, run those as like sidecar processes relative to production. And we really focus on, you know, limiting the risk associated with a change, keeping them small, getting them deployed out to production quickly, um, and then we're able to review those by, you know, pulling up a subdomain or, or something like that. So, it's probably not going to be that way forever. Um, I think there, there, you know, talk of probably introducing some pre-production, you know, dedicated environments as we go, but um, it does eliminate one sort of, you know, whole sort of step of, Hey, we got to deploy things over here and then move them over.
0: Yes. I like those conversations because everybody does it slightly different. And then when I, when I see the, like, I'll give talks and stuff and people will ask me like specific questions and want like exact advice on it. You know, what size should my teams be two pizza teams or how should we deploy? And it's always like, you know, it's whatever's right for your company at its current stage. And that might not be the right thing tomorrow. (laughs)
1: yeah for sure. I mean, I think the um the one universal truism is uh, if your organization is changing if it's if it's growing, if you know the market around you is changing, the context is changing, and your your engineering organization needs to evolve with it right um, and you know i sometimes chuckle at the these ideas of like doing agile exactly by the book like if you go back to the original concepts around agile there's like this whole principle of adaptability right uh, as as part of it and and making sure that it's well suited to to the organization so if it's truly about you know following every uh, exact, you know, sort of rule or, or or tactic, just you know, to some specific letter, um, then um, to me that feels like uh, it, it kind of um, is not in the in the spirit of continually uh, refining the process, right? Why do you even need a retrospective? If you can just go back to a book, find the appropriate, you know, section, subsection, you know, article six that says, oh, we should have done it like this, right? Like just go back to the, you know, go back to the rule book. Uh, but we do retrospectives in order to, to improve what we're doing on an ongoing basis. And I think a lot of organizations find that to be really valuable.
0: Yes, absolutely, man, this is good. I want to wrap up with a leadership question. So you're growing this company, uh, you're the founder, people look up to you. You've got, you know, a great team of direct reports. And I'm curious, like if you were to design like a leadership training program for your direct reports, what would be the single most important thing that that they get taught in that program? That's
1: an interesting question.
0: You know, I I think as
1: an organization scales and the company headcount grows, and then you start to create these departments and the headcount of those departments Grow, um, and then you bring in leaders. You know, so much of the the job becomes based in in people, right? So, really, the the, the human side of things. How do we get the right people into the organization um, and help them to be most successful? I can tell you, when I talk to my board of directors, sometimes uh, you know, it's almost like a like a robot asking the same question every time, like how are things going with the team, right? Like, how are things going with, you know, hiring for these key roles? We're at this stage now where that's the top topic of conversation, right? Is always people, not necessarily, Hey, what's this KPI doing? And so I think that's a really critical skill for every, um, department leader to sort of, uh, have a great handle on is how are they developing their organization in terms of the human capital that they're investing in. Uh, and, Generally speaking, if you've got, you know, a hundred priorities on your plate, and everybody always does, there's always more to do than there is, you know, hours in the day. Um, if you sort of err on the side of spending more of your focus and time on the the people side of your organization, typically that is going to pay the most dividends uh, because ultimately having a really strong organization is going to produce leverage. It's going to produce the the ability to feel like a wizard when you sort of, um, you know, are talking about an idea and uh, suddenly that idea is materializing in front of you because you have these really talented um, folks uh, who, who are sort of executing on it.